There's a sense in which um, I didn't choose the lesson. The lesson chose me. And uh, I have to say, to preface, that uh, I'm an optimist. I love life, and I love the gifts that God gives us. And uh, boy, has he given us some gifts the last couple of days. What do you think? It's not just the weather. It's, uh, it's the spring. We are aware of those that are dealing with uh, health issues, those that are nearing going home in our midst, but uh, so many of us have the blessing of good health on this day, and for that, we can give thanks. This has been a beautiful weekend, but this week, on the human side of things, I guess on the news side of things, has been, uh, has been full, to say the least. I don't know where you were on Monday, but um, I got out of an X class, and um, I stepped into the quietness of my office after a full day and was going to grade, and, but I got a phone call from my son in, in Georgia, and he said, have you heard what's happened? And I hadn't. I didn't even know that the Boston Marathon was being run on Monday. I'm not a marathon runner. Uh, some of you are. I don't do that. But um, what he told me was that uh, explosions had happened, and of course, that's one right there in the moment, caught by a camera, and of course, down in the lower picture is little Martin, nine-year-old, one of the three that lost their life, and of course, 180 injured, several have lost limbs and legs, and one of the most dramatic images is one of the runners has, has lost both legs, had to be amputated, and he's one of several. And that story will play out over the next few days and weeks. And uh, what my son was worried about was that one of my colleagues from the university where I taught before, and uh, a brother in Christ of yours, the man in the name of Jim Gardner, he is 61. And I am uh, embarrassed to say he runs marathons. And uh, he was in it. And the bombs were at the finish line. And, and we hadn't heard from him. Uh, he had already scoured my son since he was not in class like me. He had scoured our sources there to find out, called his wife and asked, um, do you know anything? I hadn't heard anything. So well, there was prayer. I just ceased the phone call with my son and, and prayed for my, uh, my brother Jim Gardner. And uh, it was... Uh, by God's grace that an hour later I found out he was already on a plane, you see. He finished the marathon in three hours and 12 minutes. The bomb went off at four hour and 15 minutes in. So it's the people that were an hour slower than him that were potentially affected by that, uh, by that event on April the 15th of the year 2013. I don't know how you found out of whether you found out, but I just told you that uh, how I did and that I turned to prayer because I knew that whether I knew the people involved, the people hurt, uh, there was going to be a lot of loss of life and loss of limbs, and, and, uh, and sure enough, that has played out. Of course, then the rest of the week was full as, uh, as those images, too, came out on Wednesday, and then the manhunt, and then the shooting on the... Thursday night, and then the uh, manhunt for the second one on Friday, and by Friday night, seemed to be all over. But of course, now is 
Who put those ideas in those two? Who did that? Because there's somebody else behind this. It's not just two, two brothers, Chechen brothers that lived here in the States for 10 years, 26-year-old and a 19-year-old, 19-year-old, 19-year-old. He's going to survive his injuries. And by all effects, he was part of the reason for which his brothers did because he ran over him and dragged his body for 35 yards. Who put those ideas in the heads of us? That 19-year-old is going to spend for sure the rest of his life in prison. Who put those ideas? So it's, it's been a beautiful weekend, but it's, I don't know about you, but it's been a tough week. Prayer was there on that Monday afternoon for me. God, please um, bring Brother Gardner home. He's a scholar and a gentleman and a brother in Christ of mine. And, and then, of course, the rest of those names unknown at the time that I, I did not know. But it, it brought back memories to me of 12 years before. Where were you on September 11th? You see, what's evident, it's clear, even though these have been in the States for a while, even naturalized American citizens, that it's, it's terror brought again to our, our neighborhood. And that was brought so dramatically 12 years ago on September 11th. We hadn't had war on our, on our turf. And, and there it was. And, of course, the human toll was much larger back 12 years ago. It was nearly 3,000. And uh, the word innocent should resonate 3,000 times, just like it should resonate for that little boy of nine why did you put the backpack there? What did, what did that boy do? Did you care anything about the Chinese visitor that, that was caught up to and lost her life? Or, or the other one that was there to cheer a friend on that lost her life in? What about, what about them? What about them? On September 11th, uh, those who brought down the Twin Towers, whether they knew they could do that or not, they were probably just going to bring down plane loads of people probably didn't have any idea that they would have an effect of bringing down the towers. Uh, but uh, intentional taking of innocent life. And it was dubbed the day that changed the world because it brought war home to us. And that was what The Economist, a British magazine, named it. And it was not on their turf. It was not in London. It was in New York. Where were you on that day? What were you thinking? What were you doing? What went through your mind? There are children that were on these front pews tonight that were unborn then. And it is God good. He continues to give life and give hope. Um, but I, I guess Monday afternoon and the aftermath when I knew, I knew it was terror. There were those who were thinking it might be homegrown. It's not. It's... Uh, it's uh, it's, what were you? What were you thinking? And what lessons? How different are we from that more tragic, if you count in terms of human life, life lost, event back in 2011? You see, Monday brought back memories for me. Brought back feelings. Brought back prayer. <laughs> That's for sure. It brought back something. Because we're reminded that we live in an unsafe world. Lessons, lessons from Terrorism Brought Home, Part 2. These are things that uh, were evident 12 years ago, 11 and a half years ago, and came back with a vengeance, you could say, on Monday, but were needed. And I prayed. I don't know who else did. But I know that 11 and a half years ago, with the dramatic uh, 
larger scale of the event that happens when those towers especially came down, that the word God and the word prayer were used as frequently as I had heard in the media uh, in any of my time uh, watching the news. I'd never heard God and prayer used so many times. <laughs> and, I, and I said, I thought, see, there you go. I was, I was happy about it. I wasn't criticizing, but there was God in prayer resonating throughout um, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, and all the other affiliates. And yes, I was thinking maybe even some of those commentators that may not have a solid faith behind that were compelled to feel with Americans that turned to automatically God in prayer in such an event. You see, there is a human inclination, an American inclination, to pray in times of disaster. And it demonstrates that. Here are a few things, I think at least, maybe you can agree or disagree. There is a, there is a corner of the, of the hearts of people that don't usually call on God, don't usually assemble to worship like you are tonight, that a, a corner of the heart that's a depository of tenderness, even in the crassest of people, even in people that normally their language would bespeak of uh, there's not God and there's not a sense of giving account to the divine for how you speak and how you talk and how you treat people, but in such an event, even the crassest of hearts finds just a corner, just a sliver, just a smoldering of, of something that, uh, that is good. There are occasions so dire, and men can't help but pray. What I'd like to know is on that street there where those two bombs went off, you know, I wonder how many prayed. I wonder how many. It is still something we can witness that cries to God erupts spontaneously when people find themselves uh, suddenly, without expectation or preparation, in the valley of confusion and despair. Two bombs went off just while apart from each other by very little. But the people on that street did not know if there was a third or fourth or fifth. And so they were running. They were running. It's a day of prayer. Monday was a day of prayer for me, a prayer for those on that street on that day. Like 11 and a half years ago, a nation stopped to pray, but um, there is sometimes a lack of awareness by uh, some, hopefully not us, but some, that, uh, that there has to be some qualification to prayer and to praying. There, there has to be a requisite. The most blunt way I can say it is not all prayers reach heaven, even when they're full of despair and, and uh, yearning. It's not that God uh, can't hear. It's just that we, uh, we forgot the number to dial him up. And uh, if you don't know the, di- the number to dial up God, then, uh, well... We want prayer, we discussed it in our Bible class this morning, as an emergency flare that we can fire up into the sky when a bomb goes off on a street that we're on. And uh, 
The rest of the time, we scarcely want God to be inhabit our lives, our homes, our families, and definitely our courts and uh, our sports. We don't want God there. He's not welcome. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you when I want you. I'll call on you. Until then, stay in that niche. Stay over there and in the corner of my house, in the corner of my mind, in the corner of my life, and I'll, I'll call you when I need you. Maybe I'm exaggerating. You can, you can differ with me. But this is what I believe to be true. Prayer, divorced from personal piety, is meaningless. Let me say that again. Prayer, no matter how... Sincerely, I prayed on Monday for Brother Jim Gardner. Unless I live a life that's cogent with the God of heaven, it was a wasted moment. I'm not speaking of somebody else. I'm talking about myself. Prayer divorced from personal piety is meaningless. Unless I live it out before and live it out afterwards, the moment of prayer, intense prayer for someone. Prayer without a relationship with God is vain. Prayer is not a privilege for everybody. I know that because Scripture says it. This is a hard lesson. It's not an easy one. I find in Acts chapter 10 that God hears the prayer of an unsaved Cornelius because he was living out sincerely the seeking for God and he was in a synagogue and he was being kind and generous to other people and he was praying to God and God does hear the prayer of the unbaptized. That's the lesson of Acts chapter 10. But God does not hear the prayers of some. Like, number one, he will, it is not a privilege prayer for those who will not heed God's word. You don't get to call on them just because you're desperate. Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 9 says, If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Prayer becomes an abomination to the ears of God if you turn your back to God. There is a choice, there is a free will involved right there of a person who denies God, ignores God, does not listen to God, does not study God's word, and then he wants God to show up in the critical moments of his life or his nation. Think of it in individual terms. Each American, what needs they have in their life. But think of it in terms of a nation, too, that is supposed to be a nation of prayer. Think of it in those terms, too. Does God hear every prayer? Well, not of those whose sins separate them from God. The reading is from Isaiah, chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot Save, or is ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. In one of the letters of Paul, he will uh, go on and on, letter of Ephesians, about the amazing plan of God to fix that which we broke. To tear down the wall of separation between us and him. A wall that was uh, brought on by us and our sinning. 
And that wall was brought down by the saving grace, by the immense sacrifice of the Son of God. Um, I've had reason to remark before, I've seen a wall between men. Until 1989, in Berlin, there was a wall that had been built in the early 60s by the East German Vopos, as they suddenly separated family from each other and nearly overnight... Berlin was divided in two. Imagine Montgomery being divided and Atlanta Highway being the division and a gigantic wall going up suddenly one morning. And then one half is of one political stripe and the other half is of one and you can't go across anymore. I've seen that wall. And I've seen uh, no man's land between the two with automatic machine guns that would strafe at a rabbit or human being. They really matter. They were automatic. You see, any motion triggered the shooting. I've seen a wall. That was a wall between men because of politics. Thanks be to God, it came down in 1990. I have a piece of it in my office. I celebrate coming down at that wall. But that is not the most tragic kind of wall that there is. The most tragic is the wall between man and God. Jesus tore down the wall. He brought it down. But if we turn our back as a nation or as individuals and don't listen to him, don't listen to his instructions, he who created us on how we should act, how we should do every aspect of our life, from our talents to our family to everything that we do, how we walk, how we talk, if we don't listen, we are building brick by brick that wall back again. And so he can't hear us. He can't hear us. Because we have stopped the communication. I'm concerned about our country, but our country is made of individuals one by one. We are 330 million people, but America is made of 330 million individuals. And it starts with us. It starts with every single one of us. We must not build that wall back. You want to be heard by God. You do not want God not to hear your prayers when you pray for a brother that's potentially in a bomb's way or whatever else. Sister Kaiser, the prayers that we spoke for her this morning. Give her the confidence. You want God to hear you so that God will enter into that precious couple as they come to the end of their journey here on earth. And God will give her the assurance and the steadfastness to know that for Brother Kaiser, it's just the beginning. You need God to hear your prayers. Does God hear every prayer? He does not hear of those who fail to treat others justly. And I know that because Scripture says so. In a passage that's really about the relationship of husbands and wives, and in fact, it's in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 3, it's a context that talks about believing and disbelieving husbands and wives. That's the context here. And if I had more time, we would... But, but look at the fundamental. There's this little tag at the end of all the advice given to husbands in this particular case. You husbands, in the same way, 
live with your wives in an understanding way and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. So that your prayers will not be hindered. So the treatment of another human being individual on my part, whether it's the close-knit situation of a home, a family, husband and wife, or it's a, a stranger out there on the street, that influences whether my communication with God goes directly to him. God is not a fool. He knows that we are not perfect beings. He knows that we fall, that we trip up. But the question is, how is our communication with God? How is it doing? Do we care about it? Are we nurturing it? Are we bettering it? Are we making sure that we remember the number for God to make sure that he picks up when we call him? Does God hear every prayer? Not of those who pray without faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, which is not on the slide. I will read it for you. Listen to what the Hebrew writer says. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. He is a rewarder of those who seek him. He rewards me. He listens to me. If I seek him in all things, small and large, he rewards my steadfastness and my my reliance on him for all things. All things. James chapter 1. We've been reading it in our young professionals class. It's a wonderful practical letter. And you remember these verses beginning with James chapter 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So, it's not just a matter of uttering words. There's no magic in saying words. The words contain no magic. It is the intention of the heart that always matters. The prayer can be this short and be meaningful if it's from the heart and from the intent. It can be this long and be meaningful if it's from the heart and from the intent. But those who pray without faith? No. I wish that our children could pray in school. I understand the issues are complicated with regard to separation of church and state, and some of you may differ with me, but I see it as a a sadder day that we live in in which um, events are happening. On that day in 2001, members of Congress all bowed down and had a moment of silence, and then they broke out to God bless America. And the irony is that uh, we can't do that in our schools now because of the ACLU and uh, trying to protect uh, those who differ and 
different other man-made religions. In August of 2009, a Florida school principal and athletic director faced criminal charges over their offer to take the mealtime prayer. And since that time, in the last four years, situations like this have somewhat multiplied so that uh, we're being silenced. I think these are misguided judges or misunderstanding our Constitution, but I'm not a lawyer, and I guess I could be wrong. But I think that the prohibitions that are being enforced on people are protecting the rights of atheists, and they are helping Christians to forget that prayer is not just something that you do in the privacy of a worship hall or, or of your home, but it's supposed to be done in public, too. That's where it's supposed to be done. I never see the atheists when bombs go off and planes hit buildings. They don't offer much consolation in such event. They argue most vociferously when, uh, when there's not a tragedy around. That seems to be a common denator. They do not rise up to the occasion when there's a national crisis. You see, atheism on a, on a battlefield, it doesn't help. If you're going to die today on a battlefield, your question is, is there life after death? And what's going to happen to me? Where were the atheists on September 11th when the public wept and prayed and clamored for the council of clergy in that, in that sense that we know? Why did no one seek advice from agnostics and atheists on that day? What word of consolation can they give when, um, when things like this happen? Um, eight years after September 11th, there will, you recall, buses that were being paid for by an atheist group that had a cloud and um, it uh, said, don't believe in God, question mark. You are not alone. I was trying to encourage atheists to come out, come forward. I understand. Uh, it is better to live out uh, honestly what you believe and what you don't. That is true. But uh, that said, where were you Monday afternoon on that street in Boston? Uh, if I had had my legs blown off in that race... I wouldn't turn to you. Islam, I don't know what's behind the two gentlemen, but um, they have been influenced by someone, and definitely the ones that were in the attack of 9-11 were. I have a lot of moderate Islamic friends, I've told you before. I travel in Islamic countries, and I rely on the peacefulness and the kindness and the gentility of Muslims. So this is not an indictment of all Muslims. It is, however... A reminder that, from my reading of the Koran, that actually those who are radical Muslims that kill in the name of Allah are actually following the teaching of the Koran. While, on the other hand, when Christians take up weapons like they did in the Crusades and, uh, in the name of God, bring war, there is no justification there is no God behind that. You can say in the name of God all you want to and paint a cross on your shield all you want to, but um, no. Not the Jesus who told the two apostles to put away their weapons in the Garden of Gethsemane. Read the Koran. It's in Surah chapter 5. That's a word for a chapter in uh, verse 36. 
The punishment of those who wage war against Allah and his apostle is execution or crucifixion or the cutting off of hands and feet or exile from the land. That is their disgrace in this world and a heavy punishment is there in the hereafter. I am grateful that there are a lot of Muslims that do not follow the Quran literally. I am grateful for that, but uh, that's what it says. It's called jihad. Why does God allow such tragedies? Free will. Why did those bombs get to go off and take the lives of three and the limbs of many? Well, because we have free will. Those two boys, those two brothers, had a choice, and they made theirs tragic. Very tragic. They have, the one that's alive, has still a choice. Wherever he spends the rest of his years, he still has a choice now. I pray to God that he will repent of his actions and, and find solace in the forgiveness of God and ask forgiveness of those families that he is, that he is hurt or destroyed. He still has a choice. The Christian, we need to be prepared and willing to explain that our creator doesn't initiate bombs and planes and buildings, but he does allow us the freedom to carry out even these kinds of things. Men have had, the, since the Garden of Eden, the freedom to choose. Adam did, Eve did, Cain did, and Abel was the uh, collateral damage in the exercise of free will. He lost his life, and he was innocent. And that was the first murder, and that's the way it is. I wonder, last Monday I wondered, man, have we learned anything? Have we missed the opportunities in the 11 and a half years since we fell on our knees in prayer? Psalm 94, verses 1 through 11, I will only read the first part, but you can read the rest. Is the God whose protection we solicit oblivious to our wickedness? Are we a better country since 2001, or have we kept going down a certain path away from God? You be the judge. You answer the question. I'm going to read Psalm 94. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. Has there been a public expression of conscience? Has there been a repentance on the part of more Americans in the last 11 and a half years since that terroristic act that brought us to our knees? Well, uh, maybe there has. Maybe you've witnessed it. But I'm going to read Daniel chapter 9, verse 3. And uh, this is Daniel turning to God and talking about the condition of the children of Israel. I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer, says Daniel, and pleased for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. You see, Daniel has sin of his own, but he is, he is speaking for his people in such an instance. And he says, we're not doing so hot. We're not doing very well. 
We need to repent. He's speaking for his people. Somebody yesterday of this congregation brought up the issue of abortion. I brought it up before. According to the Center for Disease Control, I looked it up, the stats yesterday, since 1973, we're now at approximately 50 million legal induced abortions. So the three lives lost Monday stand in an absolute stark contrast to 50 million innocents that we have willingly killed because of freedom of choice. Wow. Are we any closer to stopping this kind of slaughter? It's like a megaton bomb going off. and hmm. It appears to me sometimes that we continue to slide progressively deeper into, well, that's not a good word. It's not a very optimistic word. It's debauchery. We seem to be legitimizing forms of perversion and, of course, same-sex marriage is being considered by our Supreme Court right now, and so we'll get a decision from those nine illustrious people soon. And so it will go. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 15. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed, says the prophet Jeremiah, talking about the children of Israel. It's the judgment of God that's coming down on Jerusalem. That's what's looming. And he says... They did not know how to blush. They forgot how to blush. They're not even ashamed. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Have we missed many opportunities? I know God will hold individuals accountable. But tragically, many individuals go as the nation goes because we are... We are sheep without, with the wrong shepherd. <laughs> we follow ideas and tendencies and, and where most people in our country go and we forget that that's the wrong shepherd. There is a shepherd that has given his life for us that we need to follow. Psalm 9 and verse 17, The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. This is a condemnation of God on countries and nations that forget. Psalm 22 Kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. Proverbs 14 and verse 34, righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people, any people. We should remember what our coins say. It's not from scripture, but it's a noble sentiment. First came out during Civil War in 1864, but then it was printed on our money beginning with 1956. In God we trust. In God we trust. In God we trust. And it needs to be not just written on our coins and our money, but on our hearts, because our salvation depends on complete and faithful obedience to the will of Christ. Just like the Jews of old. The last scripture I put before you, bring a lesson to the close, is Romans 11. You need to read the whole context. It's a bit, it'll take a few minutes of your time. But it's talking about the children of Israel and how the Gentiles were grafted in to the tree of faith. You and I are Gentiles. By the grace of God, we were grafted in to the tree of faith. And what it says is this. They, the Jews of old, were broken off because of their unbelief. But you, 
You believers, Jew or Gentile, stand fast. You stand fast through faith. Do not become proud, but you need to live in fear. You need to fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, did not spare the children of Israel that disobeyed him, neither will he spare you. Note then, and here is where my optimism comes from. In spite of signs in my society that we're not learning lessons, we have deaf ears, and so God will turn deaf ears too. Now then, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. The kindness and the severity of God. Which one do you want to experience? That's a rhetorical question, surely. You know what to answer. This is a time to Remember. But it's also a call to repentance. Repentance doesn't happen nationwide. It happens one by one. And the invitation song tonight is yours. If you need to come, would you come as we stand and sing?